Kwan. Uh, today we are hosting Professor Robin Cohen and uh, Selena Moteno. Uh, they will be speaking about their new book, An Expatriate Family in Nigeria Civil War. Uh, Selena is a publisher and head of Oxford uh, Publishing Services. Uh, she was educated at the University of Cape Town and uh, she was arrested and imprisoned twice by the South African government. Uh, she left South Africa and came to London where she became the membership secretary of the anti-apartheid anti movement uh, where she met Robin. Um, she has also worked for the UN agency at Queen Elizabeth House uh, editing publications uh, before setting her up her own firm, Oxford Publishing Services. Professor Cohen is uh, currently a senior fellow uh, at St. Uh, Kellogg College at Oxford. He has taught at uh, the universities in Ibadan, Birmingham, Stanford, Toronto, and Berkeley. He is the author of several books, including Global Diasporas, An Introduction, and Global Sociology. Uh, so today they will be talking uh, about their new book, uh, which is based on their experience in Nigeria during the Nigerian Civil War. Uh, please join me in welcoming our guests for today. Uh, so, Serena and uh, Robin, over to you. Well, thank you, Wally, very much for your introduction. I have to admit to you that I thought it was going to be a book launch. And what I think a book launch is that everybody gathers around with some wine and some money <laughs> and you buy cheap copies of the book and you have a nice party and you take it home and you read it or you don't. <laughs> that to me is a book launch. So this is very much more daunting. So <laughs> I have to say it's um, it's it's first for me. And I'd also like to thank Jimmy Adesina, who wrote our forward and has been so supportive and so generous to us. Jimmy is also from Ibadan and was one of Robin's students at one point. Yeah. PhD student, wasn't he? Yeah. And he, he we met him again when we were in South Africa re recently, and that's where he's working now. And the third person I'd like to thank is Leo Zeilig for whom I once did a book on Senegal light years ago, and who has been very helpful because he's posted several extracts from this book onto the, the website for the Review of African Political Economy and has been awfully helpful in many ways. Well, we've, so, we've uh, alluded to the book, Selena's alluded to the book, so let me just quickly just display it for you. Um, there it is. And it's available on Amazon. Not that we want to give that wretched man, Jeff Bezos, more money than he already has. I think he's got more money than half the countries in Africa put together. But this is a good way of getting access to the book because it's available at least in Kindle form uh, all over the world and about in 11 countries to be printed. And we've priced it at the minimum um, that Amazon would allow. So you perhaps will tell us a little bit about the book and how it started. Yes, well, it came into being because we came into lockdown. <laughs> and the first thing you think when you're in lockdown is maybe we should clear out some of those cupboards and files and drawers because I, we, I live in perpetual fear 
that we're going to drop dead and somebody's going to have to clear it all out. So it, it started out with us looking through some stuff and I came across all these old letters from this period in our life in Nigeria and we thought, well, a lot of these are very interesting. They're all about an, a time that's long past. It was 54 years ago that we went out. And the world is a very, very different place. And people don't have letters anymore, don't write letters anymore. So I thought that I would transcribe some of them so that we had electronic versions and then we could throw out all the clutter. And then this turned into a book which Robin and I wrote together or separately and together. But um, mm. so it's a bit of a hodgepodge. It's very personal. And it's also fairly analytical. Well, the, 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 the academic has done his bit. The, the housewife has done hers. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. Anyway, so this was set 54 years ago. Um, and um, Selena and, and I both had emerged out of South Africa and we were very engaged with the anti apartheid movement in different ways. But while I was a student at that time at the LSE, I was also very um, attracted to Pan-Africanism, and in particular the Nigerian and Ghanaian students that I had met there, they were fellow students of mine, and in fact decided to do a PhD on the Nigerian labor movement, um, which was very active. In 1964, there was a big general strike, and it looked as if there might be a turn to the left in Nigeria immediately after independence. So that attracted me as a thesis topic, and I got um, very engaged in it. But uh, both of us were very, um, uh, I suppose, close to the anti-colonial movement, um, and uh, certainly into the uh, anti-racist movement, anti-apartheid movement. And we decided to go out um, to do the research on my thesis, which was called something like um, Labour and Politics in Nigeria. So I won't bore you with that. That was eventually published as a book in 1972, and you could uh, look it up um, um, uh, if you wish. So Selina and I set out um, on the Elder Dempster line, which was the old-fashioned way of doing West Africa. The steamships um, left from uh, Lagos. Liverpool. <laughs> Got that wrong way around. <laughs> left from Liverpool and went, she steamed off to Lagos. And, uh, <laughs> and the, okay, you, can, you can carry on seeing I'm getting it the wrong way around. Well, we sailed out. We went with some friends who were going as far as Ghana. Yeah. And one of them had a little baby, 10-week-old baby. And it got hotter and hotter and hotter. And we heard more and more rumors about what was happening in Nigeria. And then we got to Ghana. And it seemed like just about everybody on the boat got off. So we were left carrying on to to Lagos. Oh, sort of a ghost ship, really. It was really like a ghost ship, mm, yes. Mm. And one of the stewards, somebody said to one of the stewards, you're looking very miserable. And he said he was really, really worried about his 
friend, an Igbo steward, who tried to get off in Ghana and they wouldn't let him. And he was frightened that he was going to be shot and killed. So I said, we can't have this. Let's go and speak to the captain. We were very young and very bossy and cheeky in those days. And I remember going to see the captain. Robert came with me. Yes. And he said, we can't make these kind of concessions. We have a good relationship with, with the federal government and we can't... We can't protect these people, and he didn't have to come anyway. And I said, yes, but, you know, this is British territory, and you've got to look after your crew. And he said, well, I was in the war, and it's not that bad being shot. And I said, well, I noticed you weren't shot. (laughs) Anyway, he came up as we were getting off the ship, and he said, he told me that they wouldn't be able to find him. I don't know whether that's true or not, because we subsequently found out that people were shot, rounded up and shot. But anyway, we got on the bus and we headed north in this very dusty road. We were heading to the University of Ubadan, where I I had been... Was it about an hour's drive, hour and a half? About an hour's drive, yeah, yeah, an hour, but yeah. But I, I was heading off. I was attached to the uh, Department of Political Science as a kind of research student, uh, loosely affiliated. That was the idea. And you actually started uh, at the... Um, well, I needed to get a job. So you went to the uh, institute. Yes, I was expecting my first child there as well. And so I found a job at the Institute of African Studies and... I was working there trying to transcribe some research, which was a comparison between Yoruba land and Bahia in Brazil. And it was to do with, they were looking at the local religion and it was a very scratchy thing and it was quite a job. But I've written a bit about some of the people in that center and there were some fascinating characters there we used to have coffee every morning and get to know each other and get to gossip but it was while i was working at institute of african studies that ruth first turned up and we've devoted a whole chapter to ruth first because she was an extraordinary person to have known and a very courageous and interesting person. And she knew I was working there because of her association with anti-apartheid. And I didn't really know her that well because she didn't suffer fools gladly. So one kept one's counsel in her company and she would breeze in and she would breeze out. And she was just so glamorous. She was impeccably dressed. She had lovely shoes. She looked amazing. Unlike her communist chums. Yes, she had three pretty daughters and she had set up house in in London and she had her parents living old Julius and Tilly in the basement. And I knew them a lot better than I did Ruth because old Julius used to come in and do the anti-apartheid accounts on a regular basis. And so we knew him that way. But she suddenly turns up at the Institute of African Studies and says, look at my hair. 
there. This is no place for a white woman. Can I come and live with you? So I said, okay, then. And so she just moved in like a, a dose of salt. She, and she was doing her research on a book she was writing called The Barrel of a Gun. And she was wanting to do her research. And she was very energetic. She was extraordinary. And after supper every night, we would sit down in our living room with its blue lino floor and its blue walls and the fan going around slowly stirring the hot air. And she would hoover up everything Robin knew out of his head. <laughs> she just interrogated him nonstop. But we did become quite close to Ruth and, and we did get to know her very, very well and for the rest of her life. And she had a, she became after that time, she was a journalist and she was quite a high profile journalist on South Africa. And she made a documentary at the time called 117 Days because she was arrested under the 180, uh, 90 day 90 day and then it was renewed yes, yeah. renewed um, in, in solitary confinement and she she made a documentary about that but and of course I suppose one should say sadly she was oh, she, assassinated by the South African regime in a parcel bomb for those of you who don't know the story when she was working in Mozambique yes so it was a it, she, it was really a horror story at the end oh, it was but she made a terrific contribution to the um, anti-apartheid uh, movement and um, you know I, I think we've said a little bit in the book about uh, what she believed and what she thought and how significant uh, she was. I remember she wrote us a letter once and she said, you'd never believe my luck. When I went to Sierra Leone, I worked, walked straight into a C-O-U-P. Uh, and she was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all helped. Yes. So, well, anyway, well, Selena was at the Institute of African Studies. Ruth... Uh, so I suppose stayed with us for a couple of months and then yeah. took off. And she did sort of side visits and came back and forth. She went off to Lagos for a bit and she went up to the to, north. To the north and so on. Yes. So I was then, um, you know, as I said, attached to the Department of Politics. But as the war started to um, grind on, so that affected the department in a rather fundamental way for a start. Whenever a little bit of the former eastern region, now called Biafra, the breakaway region, was liberated, quote-unquote, by the um, federal government, they would find somebody generally in our department to go and administer it. So they first of all, Ukpapi Asika, who was an Igbo guy who worked for our department was when sent to administer one region, and then Larry Epegbu, um, Lawrence um, Epegbu, was then sent to another region near the Calabar, which had also been liberated. And so the department, which I think should have numbered about eight or so people, um, was somewhat depleted. And then very sadly, we lost a young 
chap, and I, I'm, for life of me, I can't remember his name. He'd only been there a couple of weeks, and he was killed on the Lagos Ibadan Road, which was an absolutely um, nightmare. It was a very a, scary oh, road. Scary road. I mean, people just died by the dozens. It had a lot of accidents road. on it. I think it had something to do with the fact that we heard that lorry drivers were putting bricks on the accelerator so they could cool their feet out the window. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we did see one example of that. Anyway, so the point is that the Department of Politics was much depleted, and there they were all these students, eager as anything to be taught. And so they decided, or it was decided, that uh, I would have to adopt... Uh, forget about my research and teach the students. Now, the person who made this decision was a chap called E.U. Essien Udu. And I asked him once, well, what does this E.U. stand for? He said, well, Essien Udu. So, so he was Essien Udu, Essien Udu. And he was a very distinguished Nigerian political scientist um, who had been educated particularly in Chicago um, where he got very close to Elijah Muhammad, who is the leader of the black Muslim community. And he wrote this uh, fascinating book. I'm going to flash it up on the screen now. It's called Black Nationalism um, and the Rise and Fall of the Black Muslims in the USA. It was based on his very close, intimate uh, awareness and relationship with this um, community and with this guy, Elijah Muhammad. He, it was also the moment when he met his wife, who was very involved in the Black Power movement. Uh, her name was Ruby Maloney. And so they kind of drew us into their circle. And one night invited Selena and me for a meal at their house. And we couldn't quite figure out what this was about. It seemed like a sort of unusual honor to be granted by him to these for junior people. And then suddenly at the end of the meal, he said, well, you'll have to lecture in the department. And you could see that this was something that he was struggling a little bit within his mind because perhaps he was a bit suspicious of us. You know, did we, were we at all, um, you know, had bad racial attitudes or whatever it was, and he was <laughs> reassured by that evening. So there we were, we were taken into the department. I was teaching goodness knows how many courses, history of political thought, we used to call that from Plato to NATO. Um, we we then also, also did something on comparative politics. Um, I was doing a comparison of India and France and Nigeria and goodness knows what else. And I hardly knew anything about some of this material. And so I used to race off to the library. I didn't give a reading list to the students because sometimes they would beat me to the library and get the book before I had a chance to read it and then rush back in. So it was a great experience in learning how to speak, um, uh, you know, without, um, you know, for that much preparation. But I also wanted to just also highlight another very important figure in Nigeria at the time, and that's Billy Dudley, who um, had, an, I think, a Scottish father and a Nigerian mum. And he was a very much the presence in the department and became probably um, Nigeria's most distinguished uh, political scientist afterwards. At the time, he wrote... Um, uh, the book, which I think was his PhD. I'll again hold it up here so that people can see it. 
Um, it's called Parties and Politics in Northern Nigeria. Uh, but in fact, he was uh, from the Midwest. He had good connections in the Midwest. And he was a, a real public intellectual. He he um, started a journal called Nigerian Opinion. And I, in fact, the very first, almost my first publications were in Nigerian Opinion. It was a kind of monthly or rather erratically produced um, journal. Um, and new sort of a newspaper and used to be dished out in the street corners. And that was great fun because, you know, you got in touch with different uh, elements of the community that you wouldn't really have met um, one way or another. But um, Billy also was a little bit, um, what shall we say, um, daring in his personality. So one day he persuaded me, I think against my better judgment, that we should go and have a look at the war front. We were, of course, in the West here in, in Ibadan, and we drove to the Midwest and sort of talked to soldiers and people much closer to where the war was happening. And uh, on the way back, uh, it was at night. Uh, for some reason, Billy decided we had to get back to Ibadan that evening. And we had to pass from the local military commander, which was good for a few miles, for about 20 or 30 miles, because people knew who this guy's were, guy was, Major so-and-so, and he would read the, um, uh, the, they would read the pass and they would wave us through. But then as we got further and further away from Benin, so this chap's writ did not run and people didn't know who this commander was, and they started getting more and more suspicious of us, and at one point got very angry and uh, asked for my ID, which I handed my passport to them, and then the people at the roadblock asked, it, asked uh, for Billy's ID, and he said, well, he didn't carry any ID because he was a Nigerian, um, and because his mum was Nigerian and his dad was Scottish, he was a bit lighter than most people in skin colour. And they refused to believe that he was Nigerian and lined us up against the car and seemed to be about to shoot us. When fortunately, um, uh, Billy spoke lots of uh, pigeon and particularly worry pigeon, and it uh, seemed to all uh, calm down. And we managed to get back to to Ibadan. So that was our little experience. But you wanted to say a little bit about how the war affected us, I think. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, mm. we didn't have actual fighting in Ibadan when we were there. But we did. it did affect us in some ways, insofar as they stopped all imports into Nigeria except for arms. So we had a lot of difficulty getting supplies of things that we were used to. They did have food, but they didn't have food we were used to. And it was quite difficult. I found it quite difficult. You remember going into Kingsway, which is a big department well, store. Well, we went into Kingsway, and I was expecting this baby. And so we went into Kingsway, and I thought I'd kit myself out with the cradle and the high chair and all the things you need for a baby. And the only thing in the shop were coat hangers. That was nothing else in the shop at all. So we, the, we had to get a local carpenter, and he came along to our house. People always come into our house offering services, and he had... Was it called Sears Roebuck or something? Yeah, the old catalogue, American catalogue. American catalogue. And he said you could make anything in the catalogue. 
So I selected a high chair and I selected a little rocking cradle. And then shortly before the baby was due, these items arrived. And the high chair was sort of all right, but it had an extra leg, which was just as well, I suppose. It had five legs instead of four. Mm-mm. I gave it more stability. But the, the cradle didn't rock. And it, Robin said very tactlessly about two weeks before our baby was due, it looks like a coffin. At which point I got very upset. <laughs> so we had to decorate it. So we decorated it and we made a mobile to put above. And But mm. that was the hardest thing. And also the supplies of food mm. was very difficult. They didn't have butcher shops where you bought your meat packaged. You had to go to the market and buy the live chicken. And I can't kill chickens. I've never been able to. Mm. So, oh gosh, it was just awful having to to deal with. And as for those snails, you just couldn't digest I, I found them. it very hard. I was very thin when I came back and um, mm. it was it was hard in that respect. And there were lots and lots of roadblocks and there were also lots of rumors going around and people were quite scared. And there was a there was a Swede who funnily enough I had met because in my earlier incarnation, I'd gone to Malmo worked at the Malmö Stadstheater, and I had a cousin from Scotland who had married a Swede, Swedish count, and they were in Malmö at the time, and they used to entertain me. And I remember meeting Count von Rosen yeah. at one of their parties, a sort of, and he joined the mercenaries. He became a mercenary and was fighting on behalf of the Biafrans. And then there were rumours that he had poisoned our water supply and things like that. Well, he he had some light aircraft. Yes. And so he bombed the the Ibadan airport. Yes, yes. He was rumoured to have. Well, he did. He did, did, yes. He he successfully knocked out a number of federal planes and other airports. Mm. But at Ibadan airport, all he did was kill a few cows. I know the cows did wander onto the but, runway. Rather. But what they, they said was that what the rumor was that he had dropped some poisonous canisters into our water supply at the Lely Dam mm. just outside of Baden, which fed us. So for a while we were sort of panicking and, you mm. know, looking at about three bottles of water in the fridge. Yes, but, the water supplies were very erratic during the war. I don't know if they still are. But, mm-hmm. um, one time, we, we people said, put the plug in the bath and just leave the tap on. And then when the water comes on, you'll have a supply. And as it was anyway, you had to boil the water for 20 minutes, very vigorously, and then put it through a filter. So it was all quite a performance. And there were a lot of water shortages. But one New Year's Eve, we went to a party. Gosh. And we came back and the whole house was flooded, had a very good thorough clean we forgot because to... we forgot to turn the tap off before we went out and they gave us a New Year present of, of, of water. water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. But, well, you were going to say a little bit about Miranda's birth, I think. Oh, yes, yes and I, I had my baby there. Yeah. And that was a big, a big moment for me because it was my first child. And 
it was quite an interesting experience. I did say to, that was actually a very good service at the University College Hospital. Excellent service, excellent, um, excellent um, obstetricians and people like that. And we had a little clinic at the, at the campus called the Jaja Clinic, which was run by um, Sandy, Sandy, Sandy Boyd, a good man of Africa. And he had a, his son, I used to see his children come out from school and they used to roller skate around. But his son became quite a well-known author called um, William Boyd. And yeah. he, was, he, he used to run his campaign against rabies and things like that. He was very good. And then there was also Shula Adenli, whose father was the Oba of Ashokbo, yeah. which was a very interesting place. We'll tell you about in a moment. Yeah. But anyway, on the day, my due day, Miranda came and Robin took me and left me outside the hospital. They wouldn't let him in. They didn't have fathers. It wasn't a family affair. And it was an awful day, I must say. The 4th of April, 1968. And when we came out, of the hospital, and when I was being wheeled back after giving birth to this exquisite child, I thought, the nurses were all crying, and Martin Luther King had just been shot, and they'd got the news. So my daughter has this feeling of an affinity with Martin Luther King. And in mm. fact, I'd seen him in London lecturing at Conway Hall, I think it was. Yeah. He came onto the stage with his whole family and was rather taken aback by that. But it was a very sad day. And so I can, I'll always remember that. And then we used to hear at night the soldiers being brought in with the helicopters from the war front. And that was kind of brought the war home to us a little. But, and the soldiers were all over the hospital. And then they? when they got better, they got <laughs> they started to walk around the hospital. I suppose they got a bit bored. Mm. And they used to come and sort of comment on the babies in the ward <laughs> 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 with their guns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, well, I mean, that gives you some idea of living with these little interesting uh, sort of uh I, I suppose not hazards really sort of the, we, we we surmounted them quite easily it's not as if we were in danger or anything like that so i think one shouldn't exaggerate the hardships that we suffered of course compared with many other people in the war but i do provide also a little bit of an analysis of the war for those of you interested in that it appears more as an appendix to the book um but uh, so you can skip it if you don't like it, if you'd rather have the much more lively stuff that, that, that Selina has provided, um, just ignore it. But, but just let, let me perhaps make one or two general points about this. Um, I open the account a little bit with the story of how the uh, Igbo were, uh, you know, a trading minority. They used to use the expression of middleman minority, uh, sort, of, sort of sexist expression, but that was the sociological jargon of the time, who were spread, of course, all over um, uh, uh, Nigeria, mainly as traders. And um, they, in northern Nigeria, tended to live outside the core areas in Sabong Garis, 
and the sort of stranger courtiers. And from time to time, there were outbreaks, sometimes outbreaks, uh, sometimes very ruthless and murderous outbreaks um, of violence directed against him, which precipitated uh, uh, the war. And in many people's mind, the story of the war is really the story of ethnic conflict or tribal conflict, to use an even older, outdated uh, expression. And I try to take that narrative on a little bit and say, well, hang on a second, it wasn't only about that. There were all kinds of complex uh, class elements involved. There were differences between the North and the South. There were religious conflicts going on that layered in and sometimes um, um, obscured the, the uh, ethnic uh, conflicts. There were regional issues. And above all, and I make quite a long uh, story of this um, in the analysis of the prelude to the war, some 42 days, a rather crucial period, uh, when there were very complex political maneuvers between the principal actors involved which suggest not so much the story of here's a group with one determined um, uh, profile to get out of Nigeria and create this new secessionist country, but rather a more complex, uh, very um, uh, interactive uh, relationship between different elements um, trying to create new alliances in the country in the hope that um, the, uh, 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 the the South, uh, which was essentially uh, industrialized, Christianized, mainly Christian uh, community, would turn against the North. And I describe this as the greater South. That was the, the plan to which uh, Ojuku and many of the people in the uh, Igbo leadership were a party to. So that's the sort of the hidden story of the Nigerian war. And I suppose it does have some relevance now again, because there is some sort of uh, revival of the uh, Biafra story. And I suppose it followed to a degree um, Adichie's uh, famous novel now, The Half the Yellow Sun, which has been turned into a movie, which to a great deal um, romanticizes the story um, from the point of view of the Biafran. Of course, it's a tragedy and she depicts that terribly well. But the, there is no complex analysis of how the war started. It's just the assumption that, you know, the Biafrans had the, the, a cause that uh, was uh, important for them to uh, defend and some kind of defense um, was, was, as it were, completely plausible uh, politically. So that's, that's the sort of bit. But I think the on the ground, one of the things that really intrigued us was the art and the drama. And I think you wanted to say a little bit about Well, it that, just uh, blew our minds. Mm. I had no idea mm. what an artistic and talented country that was. I mean, I'd grown up in South Africa and there was no art even approximating what you saw in Nigeria. They had the most amazing pottery and cloth and music and theatre. It was absolutely mind-boggling. They were so incredibly creative, carvings, and a lot of people were artists, and they would come round to the house and sell 
their art and we used to buy it sometimes. And one day we went to a shock bow and we took Ruth first with us. And that was just an incredible place. And we went to see Suzanne Wenger, who was an Austrian artist who became Nigerian, lived the rest of her life in Nigeria, and eventually married. She, she was married to Uli Baya, yeah. who is a linguist, but um, that didn't last. And she then married the Oba of Ashokbo's chief drummer, and she gave us lunch, and the monkeys were jumping around on the table, snatching food from us. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but she did such wonderful things, or the Nigerian people with her, in making every a garage. I mean, what a boring thing is a garage, but it was so beautifully decorated. Yes. And she had little shrines and sculptures that you'd come across on the road, just peeping out from around the corner. It was amazing. The Oshon Grove, I think it's now a UNESCO heritage site. I think site. it's now a heritage site. And so they revived, she revived the essentially the uh, Yoruba religious uh, yes. shrines. Yes. And um, I think uh, was recognized as a Yoruba priestess uh, in, in yes. towards the middle of her years there, I think. Yeah. So I think I, I, I recall there was a wonderful moment when we were heading back and she said, oh, she, oh, yes, oh. I was about I was about eight months pregnant then. Mm. And she, um, Suzanne Wenger rushed up to us and said, can you take this buck to the to the um, zoo mm. in, in Ibadan? And I'm not sure if I really want to. So Robin was driving. We had this little Ford Anglia. Yeah. Ruth, as I guessed, was sitting in the passenger seat in the front, and I was in the back seat with this buck. I think it's called a deer. <laughs> a deer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the poor thing was a twitching deer, <laughs> twitching and smelling and shitting itself. Anyway, <laughs> so we drove about. 50 miles back or more, I don't know how it was, and eventually we got to the zoo and they, they weren't that, they keen, weren't on that keen on having this animal, but we eventually persuaded them that uh, they had to give shelter to this creature. So that was, that was some of the, the, the art and the meaning. Yes. I think we nearly ended. I think we've gone on long enough, didn't we? We probably so? have. But I thought one of the things that might be helpful just to sort of conclude it, because we were wondering whether we were saying anything of any particular significance. And when when we were trying to sort of frame it in our heads, we decided that, look, there's a very bifurcated view of this period where on the one hand there's this idea that there are, is a colonial history or imperial history and that you know is a history of um, people coming out and administering and dominating and so on and of course we were opposed to that politically but that's one narrative but on the other hand there's a narrative of the anti-colonial nationalist struggle and so the imperialist histories were opposed to the nationalist histories and we found that okay maybe this is just a footnote in history that we were writing what we thought of was a sort of internationalist account because what we saw what we perceived ourselves as part of a smallish group of people who were very involved in 
um, the post-colonial and anti-colonial world, who had strong affiliations and associations with Nigerian um, uh, colleagues and friends and people who we met there, and somehow were trying to effect some relationship in help to build Nigeria. You may want to say something a little bit about that. Well, they were just amazing people. Mm. They were amazing people. And their dedication to the country, I think a little bit of Robin Horton, who gave his whole life to Nigeria, didn't he? Yeah. He was absolutely amazing. And even Armstrong, who was my boss at the the Institute of African Studies, he spent the rest of, he was an American linguist, in fact, and he spent the rest of his life in Nigeria and died there. So it it captured quite a lot of people's hearts, I have to say. But... All right. Well, we're going to wind up we're here. We're going to wind up. So, Wally, we've gone on long enough. We've gone on long enough. Over to you. Thank, thank you very much for that. You know, very engaging uh, discussion of your uh, time in in Nigeria. Um, we'll open it up now to questions and, and comments. Uh, um, I was only able to read a chapter of the book, which you kind.